Um, this morning's readings are from Isaiah, and they're from three sections of Isaiah. They'll be on the screen, and of course you can follow along in your Bible. So uh, we start off with Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 to 20. Then we go to Isaiah 45, verses 5 to 7, and then Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame, such as craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They'll be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and he works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meal and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing, they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes, a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, it is not this thing in my right hand a lie. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from this rising sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do these things. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, 
You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in my Lord's hand. And my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb is to be servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation to the servant rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who, is the, who has chosen you. Thank you, Gary. Um, it, it was, it's wonderful to be here with you. And uh, it was, I had a wonderful five, year, five months. Gee, maybe it sort of looks like five years sometimes. I was with you for five months um, about four, four years ago, and that was a really wonderful time. It's great to be back, for those of you who've been around. Um, great to look at these three incredible passages of Scripture together. There's a lot to take in. Let's pray for God's guidance. Lord, please uh, speak to us through your word and encourage us and challenge us. Um, make us wise. In Jesus' name, amen. So in my role uh, in CMS, one of the things that I enjoy most is journeying with people who are making radical decisions for Jesus. It's exhilarating, and uh, at times it's scary, and it, it can you know, shine a light on my own willingness to follow Jesus in a radical way. How do you feel about being a radical disciple? I'd like to tell you about a few uh, of the people whose radical decisions for Christ have been on my radar lately. A single man wanting to become a missionary, excited about being single because it opens him up to the possibility of taking on more personal risk than if he had a wife and kids to consider. And so he's intentionally looking at parts of the world where other people won't go because of the risk of physical danger or government, police opposition, or worse. And he says, well, someone has to go to those higher-risk places. It might as well be me. Radical. Or a missionary family, some of you may know them as D&T from our branch. They're planning to go back to Asia after having worked there for um, 10 to 15 years um, establishing ministry, especially amongst orphans with disabilities. But during COVID, Westerners had to leave and many of the, the structures that they'd created over that long period of time, they just evaporated. And yet, D&T are now determined to go back, even though they haven't been able to get into the country. It's been years since they were there, 
but they've been praying for this and longing for this, even if it means sort of starting from scratch. That's radical. One of our workers in a Muslim-majority country uh, in the Middle East has asked us to pray for a local Christian woman that she's been supporting. This woman became a Christian from a Muslim background. Her husband originally didn't think it was genuine, uh, but then one day she said, uh, I've become a Christian, and he realized it was genuine. And not only has he been beating her, uh, he has been bringing his friends from the local mosque to beat her as well. And she knew that if her husband found out about this, it would be difficult, but she didn't realize just how difficult and awful it would be. Now, she could make it go away by leaving the marriage. But in her culture, she can't do that without losing her children and without losing all of her rights within the society. She could make this go away by renouncing her faith, but she won't because Jesus is Lord. She's radical. Or a former missionary who received an inheritance, a significant five-figure amount. Now, we, we sometimes encourage CMS supporters to put CMS in their wills. So, you know, your kids have to deal with the fact that you, you're committed to, <laughs> to CMS. Oh, mum, dad, we have to share our inheritance with CMS. You know, that's great. Um, if you're redoing your will, please put us in there because this is a ministry that's going to continue on, we pray. Um, but what if you yourself receive that inheritance? Well, this missionary contacted me to say, well, we already have enough to live on. Um, and they're living pretty meagerly. Uh, but they didn't want their standard of living to change. They wanted CMS to have the whole lot. Radical. I could tell you 50 other stories of people making radical decisions for Christ. But you may be thinking, yeah, that's great. It's enthralling, isn't it? But it's not really me. Um, it's inspiring. It, it makes me shake my head a little bit, but I'm not a radical. And is it reasonable to think that Christians should be radical? That's the question I'd like to think about. Could I be a reasonable Radical. Now, I know that's a contradiction in terms. We're not talking about being a reckless radical or a foolish radical. Um, we're talking about being a reasonable radical, because after all, being reasonable simply means having good reasons. Your friends and family might think you're crazy, but maybe your reasons are sound. So we're talking about the global nature of mission uh, because after all, is, if the gospel isn't good for the whole world, then why would you think it's good for you? Why would you think it's good for you if it's not also global? So we're going to turn our attention to the world in just a moment, but we want to start by thinking biblically about what it is to be a reasonable radical. What can we learn about being a reasonable radical? We're going to look at three perspectives of a reasonable radical. Firstly, they have a reasonable view of comfort. 
Second, a reasonable view of God. And third, a reasonable view of God's mission. So let's start with point one. They have a reasonable view of comfort. Because comfort ain't just comfort. Comfort has become something more than just enjoyable, pleasurable living. It's something we can't live without. And I think comfort is a one-way path. You can increase comfort, get more comfortable, buy more stuff to make you comfortable. You can maintain comfort, but you can't easily backtrack on the comforts. It's very hard to take comforts away. Do you remember when we used to think that 65-inch TVs were extravagant? Not anymore. When I moved to Adelaide 18 years ago, I was embarrassed by my huge 34-inch TV. I didn't want people to see how indulgent I was. But just imagine that's all I had now. You know, I'd be embarrassed to invite people over to watch the footy. You could hardly see the ball. Now, is this reasonable behaviour? That we just keep getting bigger TVs? Mind you, the TV question is not really the big one. The big one is the question about idols. Worshipping other gods than the gods of the Bible or just having other things that you treat as if they are God. That is, you, you treat them as effectively more important to you than God. That when push comes to shove, you'd cling on to them and wind back your commitment to God or even let go. God assumes that those who don't worship him will worship other gods. But he is adamant that his people will not worship other gods. Idolatry is the definition of sin. God isn't my God, even though I say he is. Well, this isn't only wicked, it's unreasonable It's foolish, and the Bible mocks it. We had some passages from the Old Testament, from that section in Isaiah, the Isaiah 40s. Um, And idolatry rears itself uh, throughout the Old Testament as trust in other nations or trust in the gods of other nations. But these other gods were often depicted by actual idols, actual things, blocks of stuff, physical objects, made of metal or wood. Israel, why would you look to the gods of the nations to help you when Yahweh, your God, is the God who made the heaven and earth? We read that beautiful takedown of idolatry from Isaiah 44. It's a good one to go back and just just reflect on. That idolatry isn't reasonable, it's ridiculous. The man takes a block of wood from a tree that maybe he planted or he found it in, 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 the, in the woods, he chops it down and he, he does two things with it. He makes a fire and makes himself some dinner and warms himself. Oh, that's nice, I'm warm. And he makes an idol and fashions it, sticks it in a temple, bows down to it and worships it. And the Bible is saying, are you ridiculous? Are you crazy? Can you see what you're doing? This is just total foolishness. 
And it's pretty blunt in the way it says it. The last verse of that one said, he can't save himself, this man. He can't bring himself to say, this thing I'm holding in my right hand isn't really a God at all. For some of you, comfort is not your main idol. You're a competitive person and you want to win, maybe through your work or your sport, or if you get too old for sport, find something else you can win at. Um, or maybe just by making more money than everyone else or having the nicest house in town or at least a better one than the person next door or whatever, or, or than your friends. Um, or, you know, your ministry is bigger than anyone else's. That, that can be an idolatry too. And if this is your anchor, if, if these, this competitiveness is your anchor, your heart's desire, are you a fool? The Bible is asking. For others, pleasure is your idol. That's what your heart desires. You know, our society claims to have a lot to offer you in this department, whether it's sex or exhilarating experiences, fine dining, a bit of pampering. Is that your anchor? Is that the thing that drives your life? The Bible's asking, are you a fool? But I, I reckon that for most of us here in um, comfortable Australia, the biggest idolatry risk is comfort. I cannot walk back my comforts. I can't give this up. You know, and, and I guess the question is, is it downsizing that you would struggle with or, or maybe downgrading various elements? And I've got to say, I agonize over this. I'm not just telling you this out of my own, my own mind. I see the foolishness in my own life and my own, the way in which I'm caught up in comforts and things like this as well. And the question is, how will I demonstrate to myself and to God, who knows my heart better than I do, that I am not an idolater? And I just have to keep thanking God for the cross of Christ because but for the cross of Christ, my idolatry is right there before God and he sees it. And yet because of the cross of Christ, he sees Christ's perfect, sinless, idolatryless life in place of mine. And I can rejoice in this. He forgives me. And yet I must continually repent because I am continually finding other things to get my heart, to, to, to cling onto with my heart. The example of TVs is trivial because some of us are earning enough money to buy a new TV every year and still give 10 times that amount to gospel ministry or global mission. The real issue is what we cling to, what's driving us. The reasonable radical has a reasonable view of comfort. The second perspective of a reasonable radical is... Point two, they have a reasonable view of God. And this sort of follows on from that. Giving your life to Christ is not a poor substitute for joy and happiness. It is the path to joy and happiness. Although worshipping the God of the Bible is a narrow path, at times a difficult path, it's not an uncertain path. Making sacrifices for God is not crazy. It's sensible. Why? Well, hear the words of Isaiah. Chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord 
And there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, says God, even though you've not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, that is everywhere, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. All other gods are false hopes. All other hopes are false hopes. I, this is a real perspective shaper, isn't it? God, God is not only the creator of all things, but also the shaper of all things. He's active, busy. He's at work in creation, and he's actually working everything towards his intended purpose for the creation. God says, I bring prosperity and create disaster. He's saying he's the main active agent in the universe. And even the main active agent in our lives. And so as the details of our lives unfold, so too does God's will for our lives unfold. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? That's not to say that his will for us is to sin or to make stupid decisions, but even our sin and stupid decision he uses to bring about his will. What extraordinary sovereignty. We might be thinking, oh, well, I've, I've made something of myself, you know, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I compare myself with people in my year at school or whatever. Look, my, my family, look, the life I've built for myself and for my family. But God's, God says, I bring prosperity. This prosperity you have, you have, as, as, you have it as a gift. Your prosperity is mine to give you. And I did. I loved you. I love you. And I gave you that prosperity. I'm assuming that we all realize that we are very, very, very rich by world standards. You know, 99% of the world is poorer than us. What if God took away our wealth? Would that make you panic? Our reserve bank is terrified of inflation. It's just a number, but they want it in a, in a particular range. They're terrified. Our society considers any negative impact on GDP growth to be a moral issue. I'm not just talking about GDP shrinking. I'm just talking about anything that stops it from growing. We, th we think that's moral, and we think you have to vote to make sure that you maximize it because it's moral. Um, what, what about you personally? What if your superannuation balance just suddenly disappeared overnight and there was nobody to back it up and it was just gone and the property market just disappeared? You know, there are any number of scenarios that could take our wealth away. We've se we're seeing major changes in the world order at the moment. Who knows? I don't want to be a fear monger, but I'm just saying, what if that happened? What if God brought that on us? Oh, but God wouldn't let that happen. He's a good God. 
Yes, but he says, I bring prosperity and I create disaster. He's done it before to his people. He's torn everything away from them to wake them up. But, but our national stability, I mean, that actually, if I think about it, that actually makes me feel stable. My super, that, that's my future, that's my security, it's the way I'm providing for down the track. No, God is your security. The gospel is how God provides for your future. And not just yours, because the gospel is not just for you. Which brings us to the third perspective of the reasonable radical. Point three, they have a reasonable view of God's mission. Uh, Because God is good and his plans for the world are good. They're just much, much bigger than we can often contemplate. He is redeeming people. That is, buying them back out of slavery, paying the cost for their liberation. He's redeeming people to himself, and he calls this salvation, rescuing from disaster. But the Bible tells us that the disaster from which we need salvation, it's not actually the collapse of the economy. It's separation from him. That would be the disaster that you don't want to happen to you. It's facing his wrath. It's facing the day of judgment. But no, the prosperity we need is his lasting eternal prosperity and he has a plan for all this. And it's very much in motion. It's been in motion before the creation and we might call it God's mission and this mission is declared in the Bible passage we read for, read from Isaiah 49. And this one's probably a good one to look up if you've got Bibles in front of you. It's worth just looking at this for a few minutes. Um, it starts, listen to me, you islands, Isaiah 49 verse 1. Hear this, you distant nations. Sounds like he could be talking to us in Australia, doesn't it? The distant island. Um, but... Who is the speaker here? Um, Before I was born, the Lord called me. Before the mother's womb, from my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He's made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. You may be thinking this is obviously Jesus, right? But just pause because this is written to people who don't know that name, Jesus. Verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So to the original Israelite reader here, it sounds that um, Israel is the speaker, reporting that in verse 3, God has spoken to me and called me his servant, Israel, with a role to display God's splendor to the world. But Israel then acknowledges that it hasn't worked. Verse 4, but I said I have labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing at all, and yet what is due 
me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. This is a very generous picture of Israel's failure, isn't it? That in some ways she has done this job of displaying God's glory, but not really. Labored, but not produced anything. And all Israel has is to depend now on God's mercy. What's due to me is in the Lord's hand. But now in this next bit, there's something going on in terms of who's speaking to whom. It's sort of Israel still speaking. But notice how the speaker is referring to himself as having the role of bringing Israel back to God. So Israel is bringing Israel back to God. How does that work? Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant and to bring Jacob back to himself, to gather Israel to himself... For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. Chapter 49 here is one of the servant songs of Isaiah, where this figure appears, this mysterious servant, who sometimes looks like the nation of Israel, but sometimes looks like an individual person within the nation of Israel, working as Israel for Israel. And so if we were Israelites in the in the centuries leading up to the coming of Christ, grieving that Israel doesn't appear to have fulfilled its role as the one to display God's splendor to the world, then we might be just waiting for this servant figure to come along. And, and now we have seen Jesus, and so there are bits of these servant songs that just they seem to make a lot more sense now. Let's read again what God says to this servant. Verse 6. He says... It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations. The Gentiles, it might say Gentiles in your translation, but it's just the same word as the nations. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? To the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And of course, this servant turns out to be Jesus. He will not only bring Israel back to God, but he will be God's light for the nations, for the whole world, to the ends of the world. He will display God's splendor in the way that Israel, the nation, failed to do. And everyone will notice, even kings and princes will acknowledge him as God's chosen one. This is God's mission, that Christ, Jesus, fulfills the servant role that is given to Israel, that through Israel, God's splendor would be displayed to the whole world. And so when Christ does come, what does he do? He does exactly what these servant songs from hundreds and hundreds of years before he arrived, exactly what they said he would do. God's splendor is displayed through these miraculous works. Power over the, the wind and the waves through his teaching, where people understood what God was saying, through his authority, 
authority, including over the evil spirits around him, through his compassion for the needy and the lost, and then ultimately he displays God's splendor through his death and his glorious resurrection. And because of all of this, what what do the Christians say of him? They say, Jesus is Lord. Lord. And, And that proclamation, Jesus is Lord, that is the mission of God, to proclaim that. It's not a localized mission. It's a global mission. It doesn't mean it doesn't have a localized component because Mount Barker is part of the globe. But it does mean that God's mission is global. Trinity Church, Mount Barker, it is too small a thing for you to proclaim Jesus as Lord of the hills. Because God has made Christ the Lord of all the peoples of the world. And when we, when we grasp that Jesus is the displayer of God's splendor, i.e. Lord of all the world, to show God to the whole world, then making decisions, even if they're radical ones, even ones that your family think are stupid, decisions to go and proclaim him as Lord to the distant peoples, it's not unreasonable, it's rational. He's the God of the world. You know, as radical as we think some people's decisions sometimes are, giving away money, you know, facing whatever it is, there are good reasons for this. So conclusion then, what about you? Is it unreasonable to make radical decisions based on being loyal to the true God? And personally engaged in his purposes for the world? Is that unreasonable? Well, a few points to finish. Firstly, uh, it sounds like I'm sort of putting missionaries up on a pedestal. Um, I'm not not putting missionaries up on a pedestal because missionaries actually struggle with the same kinds of things that we all struggle with. They're not super Christians. And although they are public Christians, we, um, well, so they're not super Christians, but they are public Christians. And so we do hold them to a very high standard like we would ministers and pastors. But nevertheless, it's true that they're struggling with idolatry like the rest of us. They too lose sight from time to time of God. They even lose sight of God's global mission because they relocate to another locality. Um, you know, I don't want to put them on a pedestal, but they have made decisions and continue to make decisions that are radical as far as the world is concerned. I also want to say, secondly, um, to finish, that making a radical decision doesn't put you right with God. Like, you can't radicalize your way into the kingdom. Um, This is a response to what God has done. And so our, our, our decisions are responsive decisions. What God has done in Christ is to deal with your, the problem that you have between you and God. And you need to come before him and repent and come to know Christ as your own saviour. Um, but you can't radicalise your way into the kingdom. 
Uh, thirdly, then, uh, by way of conclusion, some of us need to be the next generation of missionaries uh, from this branch. Could that be you? Um, or could it be, you know, so maybe you have no kids and you're thinking, well, actually, that would give me more flexibility. Or maybe you have young kids and so you think, oh, I could, I could relocate them to a different part of the world. Or maybe your kids have moved out and you think, okay, now that could make things easier. Uh, or if it's not you to go, could it be your kids or your grandkids that go? Um, I mean, it's great, isn't it, if your kids are on a path towards a profession or, you know, a good life, but what are you actually praying for them to get in life, to be in life? You're praying for them to settle down to the comforts of Western living? Well, this is a really hard prayer, but what about praying that, Lord, they might become health workers for the gospel or engineers or teachers or development workers in a gospel-poor part of the world? Imagine they were so convicted in their faith, your kids and grandkids, that they made radical decisions for Jesus. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? Would you pray for that? These are really hard prayers to pray for. You might be praying for 20 Christmases without your kids. It's a tough prayer for a parent, but the mission of the church is vital. And fourthly, it's not all about becoming missionaries. Not everyone is going to be a missionary. There are plenty of ways to be radicals with good reasons right here. We have neighbours who need bold evangelists. We have ministries that need generous givers and passionate prayers. But we've got to be asking this question, how can I be a reasonable radical? Lord, what do you want me to do with my time, my money, my skills? Lord, how should I be living my life? Are you, are you asking that question of the Lord? What sacrifices... For Christ, do you want me to make? Because it does make sense for a young single man to go to a difficult, gospel-poor country because Jesus is Lord. It does make sense to go and continue or restart work after a long period of disappointment, just do it all again because Jesus is Lord. It does make sense to stay a Christian, even if your husband is persecuting you, because Jesus is Lord. It does make sense to give our whole inheritance to mission, because Jesus is Lord, and Jesus, the Lord, tells us that we share in his inheritance. And that's a much bigger inheritance. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we stand uh, before you having uh, heard your word from Isaiah. And these are challenging words. Um, but Lord, we're reminded that you are God over the earth, that you bring uh, prosperity and disaster. And so we come to you and we entrust our lives to you, uh, knowing that actually you have this mission to to bring Christ and salvation and liberation uh, to the whole world. Please make us uh, humble always before you, uh, always listening for your word and seeking to 
be faithful to it. Uh, but Lord, would you please stir in us a desire to do what you want us to do. Um, give us all a, a desire to pray those prayers. What should we be doing in your service? And Lord, would you answer us? We pray that you would answer us gently because sometimes there are things that are hard for us to give up, but we don't want to go without that answer. We want to know what are the idols in our hearts and what have we not understood about you and your mission. So we pray these things for the sake of Christ's kingdom. Amen.